Time is filled with swift transition. Not on earth unmoved can stand. We just sang that song a moment ago. In the message of it, a fascinating and enthralling thing reminding us that there are matters far beyond what matters in time for us will be. There are matters far beyond that that anchor our life, that allow us to appreciate a steadfastness with regard to what God has revealed. We're always honored to be able to gather on the Lord's Day, to come together on this Sunday morning, even as we currently are. I would point out that surely in light of some of the matters that have already been shared with us today, to contemplate these families who are grieving in the ways that we each know so well. A startling and amazing thing to encounter that what has transpired for them. May we all be earnest in prayer, earnest and kind and sweet thoughts on their behalf, for surely they need it. We come today to a lesson I've entitled, The Temptations of Jesus. You may well be aware of the fact that we have set before ourselves this calendar year that on the first Sunday of each month, we're going to look at some of the grandest aspects of the life of our Lord. And so it is that already we've looked at two, both in January and February. On the first occasion, we looked at the birth of Christ. In February, we reflected on the baptism of Christ. Today, as you can already tell, it shall be connected to the temptations. Would you think with me for the next few moments then about them and to extract from them some mighty lessons for you and me, things that will encourage us, things that will in fact bless our lives in a very dramatic and powerful way. Wouldn't you be quick to say with me that dealing with temptation is something that's critical for all of us face it. How will we react in those moments of temptation? What decision, what choice will we make? Will it be the wrong one or will it be the correct one? Will it be the one that will ultimately lead to your life and maybe those we influence to move in a direction that's not good? Or on the other hand, will it be that choice of decision that will allow us to motivate in a way to remain near to the Lord? All those things are going to be issues we shall have to consider. As you close that slide with me, may I invite you to note the following. There's much to be learned, and in fact, both the writer of Matthew, namely Matthew, and Luke, the writer of Luke, has recorded for us some issues, in fact, some details about the, the scene of the Lord's temptations. As we turn to the next slide, why don't we first appreciate somewhat of the setting of the temptations? I believe upon consideration of that, we will be more able and more in a position to understand perhaps the greatness of them. And so on this slide, as we step through it, in Luke 3, verse 23, which is right before Luke's version of these temptations, we learn somewhat of the Lord's age. He was about the age of 30. And in addition to that, He had come to the Jordan River, and there He had desired to be baptized by John the Baptist. Again, as we looked at that last month, we came to see somewhat of the urgency, somewhat of the majesty and power connected to baptism. Surely in that connection, we notice that the Holy Spirit came upon the Lord, and the text says that He enjoyed that blessing without measure, according to John chapter 3, verse 34. One final idea, though, might be this. Almost instantly... Almost in the next observation, it says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where He was to be tempted of the devil. 
at this point, could we not pause and make this observation? The text says the Spirit drove him, led him into the wilderness. These temptations were to be a manifestation of his greatness in light of the overcoming of the devil. As that scene took place, namely this matter in the wilderness, there are some of the gospel writers who inform us that while Jesus was in this wilderness area, he wasn't alone. There were wild beasts there. Could you imagine how you and I might have reacted? There would no doubt be fear if there were wild beasts in the area. There would no doubt have been some concern for one's own health with that degree of wild beasts in the vicinity. And yet as the Lord was there, we gain a sense that He was solely focused upon that which He was now about to deal with. The Lord knew these temptations apparently were directly to transpire. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. A period of a month and 10 extra days. This degree of fasting was complete. You and I might remember there were others in the Bible who had fasted for 40 days. Moses had done it apparently twice. We remember others who found themselves in circumstances and it was always surrounded by some of the greatest of religious events. For Moses, it was in regard to Mount Sinai when the law was delivered to him. Here you and I notice that Jesus was about to embark on that ministry that would literally transform eternity for all people. He was about to start preaching. He was going to set forth that ministry of heaven. He was going to do so in a way that truly would change the eternities of so many individuals. Is it not fair to say that in Matthew 4, verse number 3, after this period of 40 days, it's not at all surprising the Lord was hungry. Wouldn't we each be hungry going without food for 40 days? Wouldn't we each be in a period of somewhat greater physical weakness having gone without food that long, and yet in light of it, we aren't surprised, I suppose, when the text reminds us that now the tempter came before him. I might pause long enough to say, had it then been the case that the tempter had been nowhere in sight for the previous 40 days? Had it been the case that Jesus was nowhere at all tempted during the 40-day period, and now suddenly the devil comes and these are the first temptations? There are some of the languages that appear to indicate there may have been instances in which Jesus had been tempted somewhat earlier. But these are the main ones. These are the overwhelming ones. These are the ones that will allow us to appreciate just how great the issues of these temptations were. Let's start to look at the next point. One of the first issues that I would set before us is maybe one that's deserving of at least these few remarks. Depending on the sources that you consult and maybe the authors that may have something to share about them, there are sometimes those who would say these temptations as recorded are only symbolic. That is to say they never really happened in the way that this might lead you to believe. They were only symbolic of the kinds of temptations that Jesus otherwise faced. In fact, they might say, Are you really meaning to tell me that the Lord was hauled to the pinnacle of the temple? Come on now. 
Do you really believe that happened? And there might be others that say, Do you really believe the devil, in fact, stood right before him and said, If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world in that which you now are able to see. So you may be aware of some writings who might at least imply that these were only symbolic. On the other hand, may I invite you to notice, we have every assurance that these were real, that these were genuine, that they transpired precisely as the biblical text would set before us. At the very least, could I not offer you some of the thoughts you may notice on this slide? Namely, that if these were only imaginary, if these were in some ways no more than symbolic, then what does that say about comparing the Lord's temptations with those that you and I face? If it is the case the Lord was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, if He didn't face the temptations in their urgency as you and I do, if He did not face temptation with the character of decision that you and I are faced with, then you and I would have every reason to believe that how can He identify with what I face? How does He know what I'm dealing with? May I say the other hand of that is this, if the Lord faced every kind of temptation in reality that you and I will ever face, and He did so without sin, He did so without faltering or failure, then you and I have the greatest of assurance that in every circumstance we face, He does know how we feel, He is able to provide the assistance and His words of encouragement and His words of direction and guidance are exactly that which you and I would need. These temptations were real. You may notice near the bottom of that slide, the Lord never succumbed to any of these. And by that I mean He didn't follow the advice of the devil in light of them. In Hebrews 7 verse 26, we are told that just like those priests of the Old Testament were tempted, but they failed. We have a high priest that though he was tempted, he never failed. He always did that which was the bidding of God. He always followed it in completeness. And Hebrews 4.15 says that he never once sinned. Not in these temptations or in any other way. One last verse I invited you to consider was 1 Peter 2 verse 22. As that passage describes what the Lord accomplished for us at the cross, among what's presented is this, we are redeemed by His precious blood that was provided without sin. Now that lets you and I know that in all the temptations He faced, not only in actions but even in thoughts, He never succumbed to them. It's probably true that that latter aspect is one of the most challenging for you and me to bring every thought into captivity to Christ, to borrow the wording of 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. To close that slide, why don't we now turn our attention to the temptations as described and give them even more elaboration, more attention. And we'll do so beginning with this one. Remember, the Lord was incredibly hungry. He had fasted for 40 days. And now... The tempter comes before him, and Luke 4 verse 3 says it like this, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. 
Command these rocks that they might turn into bread. You're hungry, aren't you? You have the power to do something about it, don't you? If you're the Son of God, why not take care of this need of your physical body, turning these stones into bread, and satisfy this hunger? I believe there are several observations that might be worthy. First of all, to eat is not wrong. If it were, we would all be doomed. We know then that there's nourishment needed for the physical body, and that nourishment is vital, it's essential, it's necessary. But you and I know that there are other things in life which are more important than that at various circumstances and times. For example, the services of the church in which we're engaged right now, that's also important. Isn't it interesting that Paul would in fact direct something like this in light of 1 Corinthians 11. This is not the time for Big Macs and Diet Cokes. It's not. You and I then ought not be bringing our food to use as a part of our worship service to eat lunch. The two things are separate. They're distinct. They're different. Now both are important. Right now this one's important. And so the Lord's Supper doesn't involve peach cobbler and hamburgers. The Lord's Supper is not made for that. The Lord's Supper is made for something different. And yet the Corinthians were having a bit of an issue with this. Isn't it true? They were each bringing their own meal. And as a part of the Lord's Supper, we'll just have lunch along with it. Or whatever other meal it may have been at that time of day. And Paul had to encourage them. You realize that these two things are distinct. Don't you have houses to eat in? You take care of that there. You don't worship there, but we're worshiping here. Well, that kind of mentality, that kind of thinking is what motivated them to greater understanding. And yet, Jesus here, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The first thing we'd be quick to say, to eat isn't wrong. But by the same token, you notice this was a moment in which there was a great decision to be made. Jesus could work miracles, no doubt about that. No issue about that at all then what was to be noted is so wrong about turning rocks into bread? Some of the things on that slide might ask it this way. I've already pointed out, and this is one episode that reminds us of it, that the Bible will describe on various occasions things such as the lust of the flesh. And by that I mean those concerns that are related to the flesh that can be pursued in a way that involves lust. You elevate that to a point where it is beyond what it otherwise would be. The lust of the flesh. You might remember Eve fell victim to it. She saw that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It not only looked good to the flesh. That's what the text says in Genesis 3.6. It appealed to that side of her being. Despite the fact God had said, do not under any circumstances partake of it, suddenly this appealed to that aspect of her being. And for that moment, she elevated that above what God had said. It might well then be easy to see, turning these stones to bread, this was a manifestation, a moment of elevating the things of God. And even at that point, the physical desires of eating were to be submissive. They were to fall beneath it. 
isn't it true in that light, you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, that you and I notice one more thing. What was the purpose of miracles? As miracles were performed in the days of the New Testament, what was the purpose of it? Was it ever to bring honor and glory to the individual who could perform the miracles? The answer is no, not a single example. Whether it be the book of Acts, whether it be in the gospel accounts, whether it be, you see, in the events later such as the Corinthian epistles, what the miracles were for was to direct the glory and honor to God. Even when Jesus did the miracles, do you remember more than once He would say, even as He had done in the case of the healings, you recognize the proper homage and glory is to God. Well, on this occasion, to just turn rocks into bread so that Jesus Himself could eat, that would have been an usage of a miracle to just satisfy one's physical need, one's physical hunger desire. But again, the miracles were more than that. They were far more than that. For that reason, at the bottom of this slide, you may now notice how the Lord answered. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus was quick to say, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That is to say, the word of God is more significant, more important, more vital than this, and that is that by which man must live. And Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. I wonder today when you and I face temptation, upon what do we rely? Are we quick to perhaps rely upon our knowledge of Scripture, maybe even to quote it, to provide us with a thoroughfare of escape, an approach that will not be involved in sin? Surely in this light, Jesus has taught us much about this. Doesn't it at least remind us that if we are to use Scripture in circumstances like this, we must know Scripture. In Psalm 119, verse number 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. We can't possibly use Scripture at those moments of need if we don't know it. How vital then is it to involve ourselves in a study of the Word, to do so in ways that truly will enhance our knowledge of the Word of God so that, among other things, we can use it in moments of temptation. Turn these stones into bread. Temptation number one. What about the second of the temptations? the one that so quickly follows it. I mentioned earlier that one of the issues connects then to this worship of Satan. Now again, I realize that Luke's version presents this one as being the next one. Why don't we give some thought then at this point to Luke 4, verses 5, 6, and 7. And the devil, the text says, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. Would you just for a moment attempt with me to imagine all the kingdoms of the world and the glory attached to them? You and I know that there are civilizations and there are communities all, all around this, this planet. And many of them have access to riches and finery and various other things that are certainly to be noted. 
And the devil showed Jesus all of it in a moment of time. And I hope we're each impressed with another statement that the devil made. He said, I own all this, and I can give it to whoever I want to give it to. First thing to note, may we never underestimate the power of the devil. For the world, by and large, is under his control. Now, please note what I said. We know God is above all and that His power is above that of the devil, but sadly, the majority of people choose to follow the devil rather than choosing to follow God. And in that way, the Lord directs and controls, and He has the say that so many choose to follow. That's true in America. It's true in the other countries of the world, too. And the devil said, I'll tell you what. If you'll worship me, I'll give it to you. Now, isn't it true that Jesus wants all people to follow Him? He wants all to recognize that He offers them rest. Didn't He say, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But yet the Lord didn't fall for this. Is it ever a good thing to follow the devil? Is it ever that which is in one's final best interest? Surely we know the answer is no. The devil will never lead you anywhere positive in the final analysis of judgment. Oh, it's true he can offer the pleasures of sin for a season. That's what the Hebrew writer reminds us in Hebrews chapter 7. The pleasures of sin for a season. For a little while things will look sweet and rosy, and the matters of the flesh might well be satisfied, but the Spirit will be left out of the equation completely. And finally, before the God of heaven, one shall stand dear elect and doomed from everything everlastingly good. That's the way the devil operates. That's the way he goes about his business. No wonder in this light Jesus heard these words, If you will f fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of it. Worldliness is so rampant. You and I know that the materialistic side of life appeals to us. We like it. And it's a constant struggle to ensure that we keep that part of life submissive beneath the greater need to serve God faithfully. One by one, as we've arrived at this second one in Luke's account, this falling down to worship the devil, countless today do the same thing. I'll trade faithfulness to God for what I can get in the world. Be it fame, be it riches, be it notoriety, be it prestige, be it control, you name it. I'll gladly, I'll gladly exchange my service to God in favor of that. May you and I never be so foolish. May we never fall prey. Jesus didn't. You'll notice on that slide, it is, of course, a great temptation. We all know this. Look at how Jesus reacted. There's not the slightest hint that he ever even thought about this. He simply responded, as you can see in verses 7 and 8, Get thee behind me, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. What timeless words. The devil had asked Jesus to worship him, and Jesus said, get away from me. Get away from me. God and him alone, that is who is to be worshipped. 
Now those words, as they are so penetrating and they're so mighty, do they not remind us that even when it comes to the issue in worship, doesn't that provide a description of that in which we're involved today? Any and every time that we thus come together in assembly for the purpose of worship, it must be our sole desire thus to follow the dictates that the Lord has delivered to us and worship Him. For the first time that we ever substitute the commandments of men as a part of the worship of God, we have erred mightily, and our worship has become vain. Matthew 15, verses 7, 8, and 9. Jesus thus quickly asserted, you only worship God. Later on, we find in the Revelation that John had a great lesson in this regard, didn't he? Do you recall? And I suppose that there's a sense in which it at least does not seem unreasonable. Angels had revealed to John the might and thoroughness of the book we call Revelation. John was overwhelmed upon hearing all of this. He bowed and was ready to worship the angel. And the angel said, get up, don't worship me, only worship God. Revelation 22, verses 6 and 7. I would ask that you and I think that as great as angels are, as worthy as otherwise angels may be, they are still not objects of worship, and never shall they be. For only God is to be worshipped. Aren't you and I thankful for the singularity of that teaching? As you and I close that slide, might we again notice what a great truth. At this point, why don't we then look at the last one. In Luke's gospel account, the third temptation now waits. The Lord had fasted these 40 days, and the first temptation had now been completely passed. Turn stones to bread, Jesus said no. And now in this state wherein he might appreciate the need for such physical sustenance, everything in the world can be yours. And Jesus again said no, because only God's to be worshipped. There's one remaining in Luke's version. At this point, may I direct your attention to verse number 9. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, Cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. There are several things that might be noted here. Firstly, could you note this? The Lord takes, or rather is taken to this pinnacle of the temple. Cast yourself down. Jump off. Now, at first sight, you may think, well, what temptation is there in this? Why would I want to jump off from such height? Wouldn't that easily lead to damage? Wouldn't it lead to physical harm? But the devil was quick to say this. The devil quoted Scripture. He quoted from Psalm 91, beginning in verse 11. First thing we might note, the devil can quote Scripture too. It isn't just the Lord, and it's not just those that are godly. The devil can quote the Bible. But might we always notice, he won't apply it correctly. He will take it out of its context. He will try to use it to teach what otherwise is not the will of God. Is it the will of God that Jesus jump off the temple on this occasion? That text he quoted, The angel shall be given charge to bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Is that what that meant? 
Did that mean that those that are godly, people that are living right, go up to the roof and jump off? Did it mean he's going to send an angel so that gravity will be superseded and you won't hurt yourself? Of course, that's not what it meant. That's obviously not what it meant. The context teaches differently than that. What that meant was that proverbial, that symbolic presentation, how that God watches over His faithful children, but never ever are we given license to tempt God. That's not the way in which those faithful would choose to react. For that reason on that slide, you might note this particular statement. The devil can use passages of Scripture. And he can have people who will use them and teach them and share things concerning them. But you and I are admonished to rightly divide the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 There is a way to wrongly divide it. There's a way to use it differently than what was the intent of God. The Apostle John would say it like this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. That is to say, there are those who will try to teach you religious things, and they may even use a heap of Scripture. question is, are they rightly dividing it? Are they using it consistent with the will of God? All that challenges us to close this one by noting how Jesus answered. How did the Lord respect this? One final thing I'd say is how often the devil used the word if. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the Son of God, jump off the temple's pinnacle. That little word if, though two letters it is, is a word that often trips you and me up mightily. If you are a Christian, you shouldn't have any trouble doing this or that. If you are faithful to the Lord, you shouldn't have any difficulty understanding you can do this. But the point is, look at how the Lord reacted. He said it this way in verse number 10 and 11. I'm sorry, verse number 12. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He didn't try to argue with the devil. It would seem to me that some of the greatest mistakes you and I make is we try to wrestle or argue with him. May I say he knows a lot more Scripture probably than most of us do. But he could misuse it. It's not the time to argue with him. May we make the point plain and then say, get away from me. Flee from various and sundry sins in the words of 1 Corinthians 6.18. The next verse then says this, verse 13. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. The devil had enough. He had lost three times on this major occasion. But you'll notice it was only for a season. He tried again. He tempted the Lord on other occasions. This was not the only time in the life of Jesus He was tempted for a season. As we transition to that next slide, why don't we conclude the lesson? We've attempted to look at somewhat of these temptations. We've reminded ourselves of the setting. We were impressed with the reality of it. It was not just a fable or some finely collected story. And one by one, turning stones to bread. One by one, worshiping Satan. One by one, trying to prove who you are by doing something that tempts the Lord.
Jesus didn't fall for any of it. And today, the temptations that you and I face are exactly in the same categories as these were. John would say it like this in 1 John 2, 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, turn these stones to bread. The lust of the eyes, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The Lord saw them. The pride of life, if you are the Son of God, jump off the temple's pinnacle. Prove it to me. Sometimes we get into a great deal of trouble when we fall prey to this, if you are, prove it to me. You and I realize that these temptations have been recorded for us and preserved for us and are those which can encourage us so as to the proper way of dealing with temptation. May each of us in strength rely upon the pattern the Lord has used and the example that He has set. If we could be of some assistance today, perhaps to one who's never become a Christian, and maybe you've come to realize that you know that you have sinned, and you know that the Lord died for you, and you know what needs to happen, because you want to be saved. And so you would be in position to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sins, to confess His name, and to be baptized. Oh, how we would love to celebrate and rejoice with you today. But it could well be also that one who has fallen away from faithfulness is also ready to come home. That you've realized that there's a far better place waiting for those who are faithful. And you want the strength of the Lord with you each and every moment of the day. Upon your repentance of those sins and confession of them, the Lord would welcome you and do so in completeness. And we as a congregation would be more than honored to do the same. We would encourage one and all, and anyone in need like that, or in any other way that you would come. Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement, and now's a convenient time. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?